Welcome to the Aggressive Life. My name's Brian. Gosh, we've been doing a bunch of these now, Dirt, haven't we? We've been hit, we've been hitting the same nail for three years. It feels like thirty. <laughs> it's about three years. Uh, started in summer of 2019. We recorded our first ever episode of this podcast. The idea behind it being, hey, let's just have some conversations about chop chop. Let's go chop chop. Go, 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 go. That's what aggression is. doesn't mean lording over somebody else, crushing somebody else physically, powering up on somebody. It's saying, hey, I have the opportunity to get something done here. I ought to get going. Chop, chop. Kind of one of my credos. We have a Tome family motto. It's a Tome's hustle. Chop, chop. <laughs> All the kids still use that language today. Chop, chop. Uh, hustle. Are you are you aggressive in, in your life? A lot of podcasts don't understand this, or if they do, they understand it outside of faith. This isn't a faith per se podcast. I'm not trying to quote Bible verses every podcast, but I am a pastor by day and I am a believer, by the way. Crazy info, we just found out, Dirt. I don't know if you know, by by the way, we have a guest in the studio today, Todd Henry, also known by me as Tad. Todd (laughs) Henry, how are you, Todd? I'm well, it's good to see you again. Todd is with us today as I'm kind of reminiscing going down memory lane because Todd was our very first podcast on the aggressive life, the very first. So we're bringing him all the way back because we've passed a a milestone, Todd, Dirt, a million downloads we've had for the podcast. A million, a million. And here's another really weird thing. Nobody gets that reference, by the way, anymore. No? No, I think think that just like middle-aged Guys like white guys, yeah, right, right, totally. Okay, well, that's old Austin Powers, a hundred billion dollars, whatever it was. (laughs) Hey, it's my podcast, I'm having fun. I found another crazy statistic, Tad. No one probably gets that one either. Who who do you think gets that reference? You didn't even, you're you're younger than me, so you didn't even know that was from when you started doing it like 20, 20 years ago or whatever. I didn't get that. Yeah, it's like 1975 Saturday Night Live, Gilda Radner talking to, oh, who was it? Talking to Bill Murray as character, calling him Tad. So that's why I refer to him as Tad. Number one religious podcast in Israel. That's what the aggressive life rank says. Wow. Explain that to me. First of all, this isn't very religious. Secondly, why Israel? That That is like crazy. The number one religious slash spiritual podcast in Israel is The Aggressive Life. That's awesome. That, that, it's like, it sounds like, um, I don't know if you, uh, have you ever seen you know, Spinal Tap, the movie Spinal Tap, where they find out like, you know, that their their album is like number one in Korea or something. And they're like, all right, time to tour Korea, you know? <laughs> sounds like it's time to tour Israel. To do well, it. as you and I go down memory lane, we're actually not going to go down memory lane with aggressive life, but Todd's life has been impacted greatly by all the change that's happened in our culture. He is a, I don't know, what, what brand do you like to put on yourself? What title? Motivational guru? Or is, uh, a... a Cultural architect, a what, what? What? What's your calling card in terms of what your day job is these days? Yeah, I, I write and teach. That's how I like to describe what I do to people. So I write books. Uh, I spend a lot of time asking questions, and then I I put I notice patterns, and I go out and I teach about what I see. And uh, primarily, my focus has been on people who have to create every day. So people have to go to work, solve problems, invent things, design, write, do all of that, um, helping them understand things that they always suspected but didn't really have language for 
And uh, so that's really what I try to do is give people words to describe what they're experiencing so they can actually have a conversation about it. And it's true of both creative professionals and also of people who lead creative people, right? Sometimes they don't know how to talk about what they're experiencing or what they need. And so I just help people have the language to do that. Todd used to work with me slash for me for how many years? Almost Todd? a decade, yeah. Almost a decade. Yeah. And then uh, Todd would come and I still look back at those days wondering, where would I be now if I listened to Tad? Like first guy you mentioned the word podcast. Like what? Podcast. <laughs> Yeah, but like what? Whatever, Todd. I don't care about freaking podcasts. <laughs> whatever. All of these, all these ideas that were so foreign to me that were much more native to you. However many years ago that was, I wonder. Like, man, if I'd, if I'd have listened or actually tried to get more in sync with where culture was going back way back when. Who knows? Gosh, you are you are on the leading edge of that, and then you accidentally. It's called Accidental Creative. Basically, accidentally started a runaway podcast yourself to creative types that you've just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So that, I actually started that in 2005, right? Which is, you know, back then I thought I was on the back end of podcasting. I thought, man, this thing, I'm, I'm like kind of late to the game in 2005. I don't know if this thing's going to take off. You know, it's, I, it, might be, it might be too late for me to get into this, um, which is laughable now looking back on it. But, um, you know, I think everything's about timing, right? Um, that was a medium that spoke to me that enabled me to do what I do well, which is great. Um, but, you know, and you say, well, maybe I should have done something back then. But the reality is that, you know, to your point, like everything's about timing, you know? So I think at the point at which you had a platform and a message that felt like it kind of congealed around this idea of being aggressive and, you know, going out and, and um, you know, not being passive, getting off the couch, all of that was right around the time that you said, okay, it's time to launch this podcast, which is, I think, why it's seen the success it's seen. You know, it's it's hard to know in retrospect. We never know looking backwards, right? Uh, we never know what, what might have been. It doesn't really matter. I think everything's a matter of timing. Yeah, that that's a really good word. So Todd was the very first person on The Aggressive Life because it was an amazingly aggressive move for you to leave a staff where you had benefits, you had a regular paycheck and go just chart out on your own. So what's it been like here out in the wild blue new reality that we're in with being a speaker and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's, um, oh, it's been rough. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard when so much of your life and your work is centered around being in front of people and sharing insights and breathing the same air as other people, you know, and being in the same room with them. And then to have that sort of pulled away um, by no fault of your own. Uh, it's it's been kind of rough, and really, it's been more about that. It's been more about the you have the sense of like having your calling, kind of for a season, kind of taken away from you, or, or having to. And that's the way I used to look at it, but really, I, I've sort of reframed it as like having to rethink my calling and kind of be replanted in the way in my calling. Realizing that uh, speaking live in front of groups is not my calling. That's just one mechanism through which I can pursue that calling. Um, and instead, uh, you know, having to sort of reinvent the mechanisms by which that happens has been a challenge, but it's been rough. But um, I think in the end, it's going to make uh, my business more resilient. It's going to make me more resilient. Um, you know, difficult times tend to do that, right? We're tested by difficult times and it's how we respond that matters. So how would you articulate your calling right now? Again, I'm a writer and a teacher. It's primarily what I do. And, you know, I spent years and years shunning virtual events, you know, doing virtual teaching um, 
because, you know, first of all, I just, I wanted to be with people in a room. That's what I thought I did best, you know? And then I still do. Like, I love being in a room with people. Um, and I realized, you know, okay, that was pretty foolish of me because there are people all over the world who I will never reach if I don't figure out how to do virtual events in a way that's effective, you know, that actually accomplishes what I'm trying to accomplish. And so I've had to completely reinvent the way that I think about teaching. And, you know, I built a, like a studio in my my office and, you know, have sort of this capability of doing all these incredible things, multi-cameras and special effects and everything else. Um, multi-camera special effects? Dirt, what are we doing in here? <laughs> Gosh, you're freaking phoning it in. I was wondering Todd, why Todd, we're like, like in a cabin out in the sucks. woods. <laughs> this sucks. And you just do all, all on your own, Todd. Yeah. I do you mean, have anybody else who works for you full-time? Do I they, don't. Do they cool, no, do cool shit like that? No, no I, I got Because I got somebody who works full-time, Dirt. <laughs> I don't got any freaking multi-cameras <laughs> lights. It is, it is weird how there's certain things that have roared back in our culture, like haven't missed a beat that were the way they were before. Attendance at athletic events would be, but right. it would be an example. And then there's other things that are just not the way they were, and will they ever be the same way? Uh, one is churches. Churches. Most churches are a fraction of what they were before COVID, at least showing up in physical, um, you know, physically present, probably, I don't know what it is. Every church is different, but very few are, are, are back to what they would refer to as pre-COVID numbers in a building. Another one is self-help or uh, live events. Why, why do you think that, why, why are live events not not coming back in your arena where they are in others? Uh, well, I think there are a couple of things. I think part of it is risk mitigation, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, it takes a lot of time and energy and financial risk to put on an event. And so uh, last fall, we saw an uptick. People started saying, okay, it's over. They're all saying it's over. We're not wearing masks anymore. Everything's coming back. And so people started planning events. And then what happened? We had a variant. Omicron came along. Everything shut down again. And so people got burned because they had plan something and they couldn't execute. And so I think some of it is, okay, we're just going to kind of sit tight for a little while. We're not going to get burned again. Let's wait and see if things are really over before we start planning because there's a huge amount of risk involved. So when you're thinking about, you know, the financial incentives involved with doing like a conference or something like that, I think that's part of it. Um, but I think there's also a difference between like, let's, let's call it like disciplines versus entertainment, Right. Um, when I knew we were in trouble was when they canceled the NCAA tournament, yes. the men's tournament. Yes. That was the day that I was like, okay, this is this is going to be a problem. You know, before that, I was thinking, okay, we'll be shut down for a couple of weeks. We'll flatten the curve, whatever, and things are going to open up. When they canceled the tournament, I thought we're in trouble. And the reason was, if you want to know what's important to people, look what they're willing to lose money over. And this was... I mean, so much money was lost as a result of canceling the NCAA tournament, I mean, throughout the economy. And that was when I realized, okay, this is a really serious thing that we're experiencing. And so, you know, similarly, I think that, uh, you know, the reason churches maybe are, are struggling, not, str I don't even say struggling, like the, the reason patterns of habits have changed is because people have now been offered things they weren't offered before and they re they've changed their patterns, their habits, right? Like restaurants are struggling um, now, not struggling financially, but struggling because they introduced this new opportunity for people to be able to order online, right? To go pick up. Well, now 
they're having to deal with all that volume plus all the eat-in volume that wasn't there before. It was a way for them to get through, but now it's sort of, you know, it's a crushing uh, crushing weight that they have to continue to carry and um, not even one necessarily they want to continue, but they kind of have to because now there's so much, you know, financial incentive to do it. And so I think we've all learned new patterns, new habits over the last couple of years, and it'll take some time to see where those normalize, to see, you know, what is actually different on the other side, because I think we're still sort of in that aftershock, that tremor after the earthquake, right? Like things are still shaking a little bit, and we're still kind of waiting to see how things normalize. Even that word, though, normalize is is a strange word, because many of us think of normalize as the way it was, but probably means more like just the way it's going to be forever in what it is right now. How, well, what do you think? What do you think normalized means in today's yeah, so So when I say normalized, I don't mean, um, you know, go back to the way it was. What I mean is that there's at least some degree of normalcy from day to day, meaning that things aren't rapidly changing. You know, the amplitude isn't so high, right? You don't have extreme peaks and extreme troughs. Um, which is kind of what it feels like right now. It feels like there's just this massive, you know, everything's up, everything's down, everything's up, everything's down. When inflation, things, I mean, inflation exactly. is insane. Exactly, that's right. That, that's just my 3.5 cents on it, but it's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, that's seven cents now, by the way, since you oh, said it that. Is. Yeah, now, oh, now it's like 10 cents. cents. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> no, but it, but I, I think, you know, what, what, we're ex- what we've experienced over the past couple of years is something that we as humans are not wired to be able to to deal with, you know, historically, the way that we are wired, the the amount of information coming at us, the changes coming at us, the the societal transformations that have happened, not to mention the fact that we are so inundated with information from you know from day to day, um, you know, we're we're not wired for that degree of amplitude. I mean, you think about throughout most of history, people lived within what like five miles of where they were born their entire life, right? That's all they knew. That's the, those are the only people they knew. That's who they married. That's where they had kids. That's the trade that they took up, whatever. Um, and now we are aware of everything happening everywhere in the world at all times. And not only that, but we're also, by the way, we feel for some reason expected to have an opinion about everything happening right. in the world everywhere at all times. And by the way, for anybody listening, I just want to very quickly um, relieve you of the burden of feeling like you have to have an opinion about everything all the time. You don't. I feel like we have been so bombarded by events and information and opinions and all of this that it feels like the amplitude is so high over the last couple of years. Um, because And why? Because there are people who have incentives to make us feel that way, right? Because it keeps us hooked and keeps right. us engaged and all of that. We have to have disciplines in our life to keep us centered, to keep us focused on what matters, to limit the amount of noise that we allow in, to synthesize, to actually synthesize. And this is the thing people don't do. We, we absorb information, we absorb data, we absorb opinions, we absorb all of these things, and we just spit them back out. But we don't really take time to step back and to synthesize, to connect dots, to, to really get to the heart of what we really think or believe about something. And the net result is just increased anxiety. I mean, I know that you recently had an episode about this, right? Like just the increased anxiety that people are feeling uh, culturally. Um, So much of that anxiety is stress about the unknown. It's the stress of the uncertainty, the weight of what's undone, the weight of what's unknown. Uh, Because, uh, you know, in the words of Stephen Covey, our circle of concern is so vast and it's only expanding and our circle of influence has remained about the same, right? 
but our circle of concern is so vast and we spend far more time focused on what we're concerned about than on the things we can actually influence. And the beginning of focusing on what we can influence is, you know, building some practices in our life, you know, to, to ensure that there's some stability in the midst of the uncertainty. You mentioned that stat of most people died five, 10 miles from where they were born. That's kind of all of human history. We're just innovating off of that. And just recent generations, really unusual. I was just thinking about that because my wife and I have been, our latest show to watch is Vikings. Mm. You know, the Vikings, the idea is they're Ragnar Lothbrook. He's the main character and and they're going to head west. They're going to go to England instead of going the easier places where all the uh, where other people have gone in their boats, they're going to head over the vast open sea and they're going to figure out they're going to get there and they're going to raid and pillage and all that kind of stuff. So they do that. And so the the show takes place on different land masses and stuff like that. And you keep forgetting, like when someone gets killed or something happens, there's no way for anybody else back there to ever learn about it. Yeah. Because it, it's irrelevant. It's not in your five mile radius. And so they've got to invent ways to get the news back just so the story can go, you know. But I just thought about that, like, yeah, for most of history, I, I wouldn't know about anything happening anywhere. In fact, I, I just sent one of the most angry emails I've ever sent for a while, and it did no good. It was just yesterday. I get uh, I get an email, a news email from the New York Times. I, I subscribed to that, and their big headline on the, on e, on the email was, you know, a uh, COVID thing popping up in Sweden or whatever like that. And and I just, I vent, I knew no one's going to get this. If they did, they don't even care from the sky from Cincinnati. I just said, it must make you feel so good and excited to get back to your core competency of making me afraid of something that doesn't affect me in another country. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, woo, wonderful. We, we have the media that's designed for this. Let's tell you everything that could go wrong that's going wrong everywhere. And you need to know about that. Don't you? Right, right. And and you know what's what's even more interesting about that is if we stopped paying attention and watching, it would all go away, right? And that's I mean not not that the 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 events would go away, right? It, it is and listen, it's good to be informed. I mean, it's it's important to be informed, you know, as as a citizen, as a human being, like it's good to know what's going on generally. But there's a difference between being informed and being obsessed. And uh, we have to be really careful not to become obsessed with the the fads with the events and instead to pay attention to the trends. Where are things trending? And this is true in business. It's true in life. It's something I talk to leaders about, right? We become so obsessed with fads that we can't see the trends that are happening. And trends are just sometimes combinations of fads that are moving in a certain direction. But if you chase a fad, you're going to end up, you know, uh, irrelevant because, you know, it's, you know, there's going to be a new fad tomorrow. But if you pay attention to the trends, then you can leverage the trends. Well, to pay attention to the trends, you have to step back. You have to look at the holistic picture of what's going on. You have to unplug from time to time and let things synthesize, let things sink in, um, you know, and, and make certain that you're not being carried along by everyone else's agenda for your life. And by the way, everyone else has an agenda for your life. Right. And um, you're the only one who can put a bulwark between their agenda and, you know, where they want to take you and where God wants to lead you in your life. You know, you need to step back and, and ask some really hard questions to do that. What are the trends you're seeing right now? Um, you know, I'm seeing, you know, sort of, I mentioned earlier this, this trend toward everyone sharing their opinion all the time. 
to the degree that it feels like really there's just kind of a, there's a lot of noise in culture. Um, you know, D. Hawk, uh, who's the founder and chair emeritus of Visa, said that there is a hierarchy of how we absorb stimulus in our environment. He said everything is begins with noise, and noise is not very useful. And noise becomes data when it achieves a cognitive pattern, right? So you combine noise with other noise, suddenly. It's data. Well, but data isn't all that useful. If I just say nine to you, that's not very useful. But when data is combined with other data, it becomes information. So if I say like, you know, we've been recording for nine minutes. Okay, that's data. That's actually somewhat useful. Information then becomes knowledge when combined with other information in a way that is useful for decision making, right? Information becomes understanding when it's synthesized with other patterns in a way that helps you predict what's going to happen. But then Understanding becomes wisdom when it's informed by some sort of um, ethical framework. Our goal, I believe, is to turn noise into wisdom, right? To take all of the stuff that's coming at us and somehow be able to combine that in such a way that we're able to actually use it for interpreting what's going on. You know, uh, again, to do that, though, we have to be able to step back. We have to be able to look at what's going on and interpret it in light of the larger trends, the larger patterns. So you ask, like, what is a trend that I see? One of them is just sheer overwhelm from the amount of information coming at us. And the net result is anger. We're angry, and we don't even know why we're angry. We're just angry. And I think it's because somewhere deep down, we suspect that we're being used we suspect that we're be, being, you know, uh, pushed and manipulated, um, but we're not able to shut it off. We're not able to step back and to look at what's going on. Um, and so I think that's something that I see that really concerns me, this, this sort of anger in our culture. I see it in business. I we're see definitely it people, more angry than we've ever been as a culture. We are. And, and I think some of it is also that we, we fundamentally lack empathy, um, and, and we're losing empathy over time. And part of that is because we lack real relationship in our lives. Um, we are a culture that has trained groups of exhibitionists and voyeurs, right? Like, um, what do you call visibility without relationship? If I can see into your life, but I have no relationship with you, that's, that's voyeurism. That's what it is, right? So we are training people to be exhibitionists. Hey, look at me, look at my life, look at everything that's going on. And voyeurs, I'm looking at somebody's life and I'm interpreting it however I want, but there's no real relationship there. And so I feel free to have an opinion about what Brian Tome is doing or, you know, look at the bike that he bought or look at the trip he went on or look at the what the thing that he said or look what he, you know, I, I feel like I, I can have an opinion about that because you're putting it out there in the world. Maybe I don't have a relationship with you, but yet I still feel like I can have an opinion about that because that's my job as a consumer of, you know, I'm a voyeur, right? Um, and this is a real problem. It's a problem in business. It's a problem when we lack fundamental empathy toward the people we're trying to serve. It's a problem in our personal lives when we don't have empathy toward our friends. We're not able to spend ourselves on behalf of that relationship. Relationship requires sacrifice. All relationship, all authentic relationship requires sacrifice. We have to be willing to spend ourselves on behalf of the relationship in order for it to work. And I don't see that happening. Instead, we become consumers. And when that happens, I think society break, begins to break down. Yeah, back to the five, 10 miles inside of where you're born is where you die. You're making me consider how it, it feels like there used to be things in culture that helped us do the right thing and be the right person. I don't feel like there is anymore. Yeah. That's 
part of why this thing is called the aggressive life, there's, culture's not going to sweep you to a better place accidentally. Like culture before or our lack of technology, I'm pro-technology, I love technology, all that stuff, but there, it's lack of it enabled us to actually talk more with people face-to-face relationships, right? We didn't have to think about turning off an actual device that would distract us from people. I was just listening to a podcast the other day about, remember the old-fashioned presidential physical fitness awards? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, that, you know, oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the culture had yeah. these things, and that was, I didn't realize it was started by Truman. It was like, hey, we got to get people in shape here so they can go back and kill people when World War III comes along. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that that's how the whole thing came back. But when we grew up, there was this physical fitness thing, or there was recess. Now it's like, no, let's take out recess, physical fitness. No, we're not going to have that in schools. Gym class are a joke. So we've got to be able to see things, see the patterns and go, I'm going to aggressively come against that and start something else. Your thoughts? Yeah, I I agree with that. I think so what you're describing is that we had sort of cultural infrastructure that supported us, that kind of carried us along, right? And some of that was necessary. Like, you know, back in the day, you had to be disciplined. You had to have disciplines and a work routine or else you didn't eat. You know, I mean, we were largely an agrarian society up until what, not even a hundred years ago, right? Largely farmland, people who had literally had to do the chores or you don't eat, your family doesn't eat, maybe your town doesn't eat. So, you know, or we practiced a trade, you know, um, you know, the idea of like going to college and working with your mind and inventing things all day. I mean, that didn't really exist. I mean, there were like a fraction of people who did that. And so I think what you're describing is the, this sort of fundamental breakdown of some of those core disciplines or some of the core infrastructure that always was just kind of part of the fabric of culture. And I'm sp- speaking very specifically to America right now, like American Which culture. Which is the only culture that really matters. That's <laughs> really clear about that. Yeah. But, you know, I think— um, America. But I think what's what's interesting is, you know, everybody, you know, people say, oh, everything's devolving, everything's falling apart. I think we're in a transition period. And I, I don't necessarily agree that everything's falling apart. I think we're learning a fundamentally new way of being human. I think that um, it's just that things are happening so quickly. It can feel like things are falling apart. You know, one one of, uh, I, I can't remember the, the reference, but I just read this quote the other day. Uh, somebody said, you know, the, the devil's biggest flaw, and this is, that's <laughs> kind of a loaded statement, but the devil's biggest. His biggest one, his biggest the, one. Oh, the, the devil's biggest flaw is that he believes he's a force for good, right, was the, was the quote. Meaning, I think that um, sometimes fear comes disguised as wisdom. Right. Well, do you, uh, should you really do that? I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe you should wait until, or is that really true? Or you know, that's kind of painful. Maybe you should put it off. Or you know, like it 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 feels like something that is to our benefit when we lack those disciplines, when we lack the the drive that we need, when we lack the infrastructure, when we don't make aggressive decisions, when we don't cut things off, right? When we don't make aggressive choices. I mean, I, you know. I, uh, over the last year, I wrote a book that's twice as long as I've ever written in about a third of the time I've ever written a book. And I agreed to that contract knowing it was going to be a really difficult thing to do. It was incredibly painful, man. I'm not going to lie. Like it was really painful to do that. And at the same time, I'm really glad on the back end that I made that decision. And that's how it's been with so many aggressive decisions in my life. At the time, it's really painful. It's not easy. And then I'm always grateful on the other side that I made it. Whether or not it succeeded doesn't matter. I'm always grateful that I made that decision. 
And I think that we're in a place now where we don't have those societal structures to move us along. Yeah, we have to right. make our own aggressive right. decisions about how we're going to structure our life, our own aggressive decisions about how we're going to stay in shape, about yes. what we're going to eat, about what we're going to listen to, what we're going to pay attention to, um, about whether we're going to allow anybody's perspective yeah. to force us into a box. Um, yeah, and by the way, by the way, the thing is, it's like, you know, people, we, we say like, which team are you on is kind of the way our society is structured right now. Yeah. Are you on my team or the other team? All of that, by the way, is also just completely fabricated, right. you know? Uh, and so we have to be really careful not to let people force us uh, into a place where we are not listening to God, but instead are listening yeah. to the voices around us. You... I, I really don't want to sound here like aging white guy, though I am on both fronts, and hearken back to a better time because, you know, there have been awful times in American history, awful. I'm not just trying to get back to the good old days. The good old days just weren't that good, right? But if I think back to when I was younger, <clears throat> there were just things I didn't have to be motivated to do. I mean, your last book is called The Motivation, right? So it kind of dovetails right, right into this. I didn't, people didn't have to be motivated to take time off because everybody was off all Sunday. I would come back from church. My mom played the organ. The only place that was open to eat anything on Sunday was the local bar. And that's the only time we went in because mom didn't want to do anything in the kitchen that day when she shouldn't have, you know, that was society. Now there's no like day off. Think about that. We could still do that today. Culture could say, hey, no one's going to work at all on Sunday. And we would all just increase our spending Monday through Saturday. It wouldn't affect us economically at all, you know, but that was a cultural thing. Cultural thing, decision was made for you <clears throat> to not talk politics. Right. That was a thing. Like every news station as well, they were mandated by law. You had to give equal time to both to both sides of an issue. Now, now you've got to be motivated to learn both things. You've got to be motivated to to not just be a jerk to somebody who thinks differently than you do. It's it, it was different. We already mentioned one physical fitness. You walk places. There was there were certain awards that you would get in school. There there were just so many things that you could accidentally. Oh, here's another one. Divorce. There's a lot of us who weren't as jacked up as we could be because of divorce. Every statistic I've seen is like divorce is just not, not good. I hear parents trying to talk themselves into saying, well, I'm, I'm just hope that my child sees that I'm trying to take care of myself. Your, your child's seeing that, all right. And they're also probably seeing that when push comes to shove, you've choose yourself over the family. And kids pick that up. So there's a cultural thing. I'm not saying that every divorce is awful either, by the way. I don't even like how much I'm explaining things away. It's called the aggressive life, not, not, the, <laughs> not the caveat life. My gosh. Sorry about that. I'm going to stop caveating. But, but when, this is, when, when there was such cultural pressure to remain inside of a marriage, it kept you doing the right thing and staying faithful. That's not the way it is anymore. So uh, cultural thing after cultural thing that would keep you in the rails are not there anymore. So when you start talking about the motivation, that's what I'm saying. Everything you got to be motivated for because nothing in culture is going to help you. Yeah, I, th I, I believe that's true. I think um, that's, that's one of the challenges, right? And again, I want to be clear, for better or worse, you know, I, I'm not entirely convinced that some of these things we're seeing are necessarily 
bad because I think what's happening is people are being forced to ask questions for the first time. Why Now, why do I do this? Is that really something I want to do or is that something that's kind of just been pushed on me by culture? So it can actually lead to a more authentic faith or work or whatever it is, right? If, if um, you know, some of us just do what we have always done because that's what our parents always did or because, you know, like we, we have these sort of habits of these ingrained things in our life. And some of that can be good for sure. And some of it, you know, it's probably good that we occasionally question, okay, now why, now why am I, because the, the goal isn't to do the thing. The goal is for the thing to have meaning to you. Mm-hmm. And so that could look very different, you know, from generation to generation, the specific way that we do it, the goal is the outcome. You know, culture has always changed, yeah. you know, it's always like, um, you the pe- speed of change the speed of change is, is way more than sort of No question the speed of change is accelerating, which is why I think people feel out of control, which is why we're grasping for certainty, which is why you know we're looking for trusted voices, which is why we're then amplifying those voices and why we're becoming so polarized. Right? Going back to the Vikings, I'm watching that and I'm like, what year is this? Is this 1100, 800, 1500? There's no discernible difference right. at all between 500 AD and 1500 AD. The right. transportation, the weapons, all that stuff. They're, they're, that's the, that's what we've been like. And now, oh my goodness, a- everything is changing all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and so we're in. You know, I, I feel like right now we're in the space that philosophers call liminal space. Right? It's um, comes from the the Latin word lemon, which means threshold. So I feel like we're sort of in this transition space right now, uh, in a lot of ways. Because to your point about the accelerated um, rate of change, you know, some so much of that is technological. I mean, think about it, like a hundred years ago, one hundred years ago, we flew for the first time. Like literally, like it was like a little over a hundred years ago that we actually flew for the first time. And now you can get to the other side of the world in a matter of hours. It's crazy, right? Um, it was like 50 years from the time we learned how to fly to the, to the point that somebody landed on the moon, somebody walked on the moon. I mean, that's actually, there was less time between those two events than there was between walking on the moon and right now. You know, when you think about it, that's absolutely insane. So things are unquestionably accelerating in our culture so our job, I think our job as human beings right now is to ask, okay, what does that mean? You know, how, how can, what does that mean for me? And how can I build some degree of practice, some degree of, uh, you know, daily stability infrastructure in my life so that I don't get carried along by that change, but instead I'm able to leverage that change for good. And this is true of business leaders. It's true of spiritual leaders, true of anybody. I think, you know, everyday people like me, like, I think that's what we need to be doing right now. So give us some clues on, you've wrote a book on motivation. So help us. How can we be, what can we do to be more motivated? Is that even possible to can you even tell somebody how to be more motivated or is motivation just something you have or don't have? Yeah, no. It, well, okay. So that's a, that's a great question. And uh, so you mentioned the motivation codes. I'll share with you a little bit about what the research uh, was that went into that. So we leveraged over 50 years of research into what truly drives people. And when I talk about what drives people, I'm talking about moments of gratification, moments when they came alive, moments when they achieved something that mattered to them in a significant way. Um, and what we discovered through that research, and by the way, this research was begun in the late 1960s by a guy named Arthur Miller. Um, he worked with you know, people from all walks of life, leaders, um, people at NASA, people at Coca-Cola, like you, you name it, like leaders, 
people at all levels of the organization. And what he discovered was really interesting. We looked at over a million stories of achievement and figured out there are about 27 ways, well, not about, there are 27 unique ways that people talk about those moments of achievement. And the language is remarkably consistent. Okay, so 27, what we could call themes of motivation, ways that people are driven. And what he was showing through that research and what we later expounded on in Motivation Code was that we tend to think about motivation as falling into two camps, right? There's extrinsic motivation, meaning those things out there like pay raises and words of encouragement and flexibility and promotions and things like that, or titles or corner offices. And then there's intrinsic motivation, which is that kind of like just get up and go do it, right? The self-starter type motivation we tend to think about. And motivational research of Dietschy and Ryan, they talked about something called self-determination theory, which was that, you know, that's all related to like autonomy and mastery and purpose or relatedness. What we discovered through this research, and Dietschy and Ryan touched on it, but what we illuminated was that there are 27 unique ways that intrinsic and extrinsic motivation modify one another. So my response to a pay raise might be that I'm, I'm motivated by the pay raise, but the reason I'm motivated could be very different than the reason you're motivated by the pay raise. I might be motivated because that pay raise signifies that I excelled in some way. And compared to my peers, I proved that I was better than them and I got the raise and they didn't. So that's why I'm motivated by it. You might be motivated by it because that pay raise comes along with a promotion to a team that you've always wanted to be a part of. And really what you want more than anything and what's gratifying to you is being around other people uh, and working with other people and accomplishing things together. And so the money's fine. We'll always take money. But what really gratifies you is that you're going to be given the opportunity to be a part of a team with a a bunch of people that you've always wanted to be a part of a team with. So what this shows us is that we each have unique ways of responding to extrinsic stimulus. We call that unique response your motivation code. And it's the combination of your top three to five motivators, depending on how you score on the assessment, right? It's your combination of top three to five motivators. So I'll give you an example. For me, my top motivators are influence behavior, Make uh, meet the challenge, make an impact, and overcome. Those are my top four, right? Mm. So I want to see people when I'm. See, my mine is just Jesus. Just, that's just, I, that's, I that's understand. Just my I, 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 well, if interestingly, you have all these worldly things you need. Yeah, that's interestingly, fine. My, Jesus's just top Jesus. four were influence behavior, <laughs> meet the challenge. Yeah, <laughs> we've done the research. We we actually took you know, uh, no, but 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 what that means for me is if if I'm going to stay engaged, I need to see that my thoughts and my ideas are having an influence on someone else. So I need to see somebody nodding. I need to see them smile. I need to, like, you just raise your eyebrows. Those kinds of things are like like narcotics to somebody who is driven in that way. And when they don't see that, it's really difficult. So, for example, over the past couple of years, I've been doing virtual presentations. You can imagine... It's a little more challenging looking into a camera when I'm not in a room full of people. Like one of the last events I did before COVID was with thousands of people in a room where people were laughing and smiling. And I walked away on cloud nine, right? Because I influenced behavior. I made an impact. I could see the impact of my work. One of mine is meet the challenge. It's my number two motivation, which by the way, is often what we call your activator motivation. That's the one that gets me involved often. So if you come to me and say, Todd, I don't know if this is possible, but like I'm already in, like, I don't care what comes after the, but like I'm already in because you've just triggered my meet the challenge response. The problem with that is, and and I've seen this throughout my life and my professional life. If something doesn't feel challenging to me, 
I'll put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off until it becomes a challenge, right? So like if you give me a month to do something, then and it, it, I could easily do it in like two weeks. I'm going to wait until like a week and a half before the deadline because then it starts to feel challenging because that's when I feel most engaged. It's what we call the shadow side of that motivation, right? So we have to be really careful because all behavior is motivated behavior. Sitting around the couch, munching Doritos and watching Netflix is motivated behavior. You're getting something out of that behavior. Now you have to determine what is it I'm getting out of that, but you're getting something out of it. So if you're, uh, you know, if you're a manager and you have an employee that exhibits bad behavior, is constantly causing conflict on your team, constantly interrupting meetings, constantly doing, that behavior is motivated behavior. It's motivated by something, right? You have to determine what is motivating that behavior and how do we point that motivation in a more positive direction. Wouldn't just streaming Netflix and eating pretzels be a sign of no motivation? No. I do that a lot, actually. I do that a lot, and yeah. I feel like I'm doing this right now because I'm not motivated to do anything. But you're saying, no, I would be doing that tonight, watching two episodes of Vikings, because something's motivating me to do that? Will I chomp, chomp on Snyder's pretzels? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, all, all behavior is motivated by something, right? So um, that's not, by the way, that's not to say that sitting on the couch, eating pretzels and watching Vikings is bad behavior. That could be your way of decompressing. That could be your way of getting something that you know you need, um, but that isn't met by the other things you're doing in your life. I'll tell you one thing that's not healthy is working 18 hours a day and then collapsing in your bed and getting up, sleeping six hours and getting up and working 18 hours a day, right? That's not healthy. So there's something you're getting out of that behavior that is that is filling you in some way that other behavior is not. Do you think that people still do that? Work 18 hours a day? Yeah. Um, I think our work patterns have 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 changed. They have. Permanently. They have. Um, physically, no. Mentally, maybe. And what I mean by that is um, because our work has changed, because we don't clock in, we don't clock out, right? Um, my work isn't at a place. My work is wherever I am because we have these devices we carry with us now that you know, mean I can do work whenever I want to do work. Um, I can scratch that motivational itch anytime I want to. So, you know, the, the question would be how many people spend dinner with their family if they even have dinner with their family, which, by the way, has been a ritual in our family. That we've protected because of that, you know, because of the importance of having that dedicated time. How many people spend dinner with their family thinking about a work project or checking their phone or um, how many people after dinner go right back to their laptop and, and just answer a couple emails or how many people go to bed at night reading their email or responding to something or get up in the morning. The first thing they do is check their email. So the, the, the answer to that is like, are people really working? No, they're not working 18 hours a day physically, but mentally, do you really ever have a break from your work? I think is a better question. And I think that's a boundary we have to set, you know, for ourselves. Are you ever off the grid? Your inbox represents everybody else's priority for your life, right? Not your priority. It's everybody else's priority for your life. And do you ever have time off the grid? Are you ever away from the grid enough that you can actually clarify? That's what we were talking about earlier. Like clarify what you think. Do you have any discipline of getting off the grid? I mean, you do this, I think, very well, right? Like you literally get off the grid, um, but for most of us, we don't. We never have any time when we're away from the, the pressures of the ping, you know, this perpetual pinprick in our gut that says you should go pay attention to that right now. Well, because of that, we're living with what Linda Stone calls continuous partial attention. I'm always kind of here, but I'm kind of somewhere else. 
So the net result is we might be working 18 hours mentally and only getting seven hours of work done. Whereas if we only work seven hours, we might get 10 hours of work done, right? If we were actually physically present in what we were doing. So um, I think that's a real challenge for us. Most business owners and managers I talk to believe that they are not having the same work engagement with their employees that they had before two years ago. Mm-hmm. Is that true or is that just paranoia because I can't see them in an office and know that they are? I, I think it varies, right? I, um, I'm hearing managers who are saying both, right? I'm hearing some managers saying that people are actually working more. Um, but I, I do think that, listen, I think when we're physically in a place doing a thing I th- and there's nothing else to do because we're physically in a place doing that thing, I think it does change our our mind follows our presence, right? Follows our body wherever our body is. Um, and so I think if we're physically in a place that's signaling to, to us, it's the time to do the work. Now, if we're working at home, at a kitchen table, in a home office, whatever, we're five steps from whatever we want in our world. Um, I personally don't feel like that's healthy. Net-net, it's not healthy to work in the place you live and live in the place you work. Um, and I'm, by the way, I'm saying yeah. that as somebody who is, who's been doing that now for a right. decade. Uh, I'm not saying it can't be healthy, but I'm saying you have to have some boundaries and some rhythms, some disciplines around it because um, you can't afford to let everything bleed into everything. And even there, just uh, boundaries, rhythms, disciplines, okay, maybe, but th- I'm with you, man. That's, that's part of why um, COVID just threw me for such a loop. I'm I'm very disciplined. Most people know me would know I'm, say I'm very disciplined and know that I set boundaries very well and all that stuff, yada, yada, yada. But it's just a different deal when you're in your own little room, but you're still in the house and your side of the door is other things in your wife or your grandkids or whatever. It's just a different deal. I mean, that's again, talk about speed of change. Right. Never in all of human history has that been the case. Even in agrarian culture, right? The guy goes out and he's in the fields all day and he comes home. We go to the office, Henry Ford, go to the plant and you come back here, go to the, this thing of like, everything is in the same place 24 seven. I, I think, well, it's, I think that's why we're so mentally ill right now. I think we've, we're, we're the jury's in and the data's in and just shows, Hey, it doesn't work. I, I think there's a lot of validity to that. I think, um, we are wired for novelty and variety. It's how our attention works. I like it. You I know, like it. Yeah. um, and, you know, if our attention is not being grabbed by various stimulus in our environment, if it's the same stimulus day after day, and I'm staring at a square of Brian on a screen instead of physically being in the room with Brian and smelling Brian and, you know, like actually Brian is actually doing stuff and I can see what Brian, like I can see that you're writing right now while I'm saying that. Whereas on Zoom, like I would just see your hands disappear. I'd have no idea what's going right? It's, but it's like there's something, again, wired for influence yeah. behavior. I see you writing something down. That's like narcotics for me because I'm like, oh, I just stimulated something in Brian's brain, right? So we're wired for that kind of in-person throughout all of human history. That's how we have existed in relationship. And so without those varied forms of stimulus, um, being locked in a room, I mean, when we were in lockdown, that was really hard. Like physically had to get myself out of the house, go for walks, 
you know, notice things in the environment, nothing in my ears, just like pay attention to the environment because you just, you need that kind of stimulus, right? In order to be human. Well, I love your line, novelty and variety. That's why the beginning of COVID was invigorating for me. Mm. It was novelty. It was variety. It was like, oh, I'm staying home. It was wonderful. Oh, I'm going to have a meeting while I have my earbuds in my ears and walk around the neighborhood. That was novelty and variety. It was amazing. And then I got really old. Yeah, of course. So that novelty and variety. You're saying everybody is that way because I thought that might just be me. What? No, it's everyone. We're they, all that way. And and also, by the way, that is the very instinct that when you were talked earlier about all the stimulus and all the noise and all the people who are sort of sending us messages, that's what they play on, right? Is that natural baked in, the way that our attention naturally functions is we're constantly looking for something that might eat us or destroy us. That's the way our mind is wired, right? It's to solve problems and to prevent us from getting into danger. Well, if everything is screaming danger, Will Robinson all the time, that's not healthy. By the way, another reference nobody's going to (laughs) get. But at the same time, if there's nothing in our environment that's different, that's also not healthy because our minds are going to be working overtime looking for something, right? Some form of stimulus, something to keep our brain alive, keep our brain working. That's not healthy either. That's when we get sort of fat and lazy and, and, uh, and bored, and that's not healthy. Darren and Kyle, who you know, work with me and you used to work with them. They're trying to convince me the other day that I have ADHD. Hmm. Your thoughts on that? <laughs> You well, in my professional you opinion, Well, you Brian. mentioned novelty and variety. I do yeah. like novelty and variety. But you're saying if everyone has that, maybe that's not ADHD. Maybe I have ADHD. I'm going like, I know in your professional opinion, you've worked with me, spent a lot of time with me. You think that uh, that could be me at all? Yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's, it's really interesting. I'd, I'd love for you to actually talk with an actual expert about that because I, I, you know, I'm not equipped. But, but what I've seen is that you know, in, in your situation – the way that you're wired, um, just like all motivations, right, has positive attributes and it has negative attributes or shadow side attributes. And sometimes one of the shadow side attributes of some of these visionary uh, motivations is that you're always about the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Well, people are still trying to execute the thing that you just said was going to be the next thing. And now you're on to the, that, that other next thing that's going to be really, this is really going to be the next thing. Um, And, you know, that can have kind of a a whiplash effect as a leader. And so sometimes as a leader, we have to be able to step back and say, um, okay, what are not just the first order consequences of my words, but what are the second and third order consequences of my words? Because when the, the bigger the organization you lead, the more ripple effects are going to be for every initiative that you personally champion. Right, yeah. because it's going to take. It's like a train engaging, like and then the train's moving. Well, sometimes your engine goes right, and the train's still engaging, and you know, you're already like way down the track, and the train hasn't even fully engaged yet on the first, you know, the first thing. And I think that's not just you. I'm saying in general, pe- people who tend to be that way as as leaders often don't recognize um, that sometimes you have to wait. There is a tremendous value in the strategic pause, you know, productive procrastination. Okay. We've got a thing. I'm just going to wait. I want to do this now. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait and not, you know, get ahead of everybody. Um, That's a difficult thing to do. Todd, this has been deep. It's been rich. It's been great. 
If you want to follow up with Todd, he's written some really great books, Herding Tigers, Die Empty, The Motivation Code. I'm personally motivated to go back and read The Motivation Code. You gave us a lot, a lot of good stuff. Anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about here today, Todd? It's, all, it's been all the things that I've wanted to talk about. How about you? Anything you want to talk about? <laughs> um, yeah, I think the main thing is right now, I mean, I've really been on this kick where I'm, I'm talking a lot, I'm thinking a lot about what it means to be brave, right? And... Um, I feel like we're in, right now we're in a time, you know, we were talking about the influx of information and all the agendas that are floating around and all of that. We're in a time when people need to choose to be collectively brave, right? Like I feel like we need, um, bravery needs to feel like a personal choice for us right now. And bravery isn't just, I'm going to go do something bold. We conflate boldness and bravery. They're not the same thing. Um, you can be bold and not be brave. You can be brave and not be bold. But um, your bravery exists when two fundamental things exist, um, I believe. The first is you have to have a sense of optimism. You have to believe that there's a better possible future. You have to believe that there's something that we're navigating toward that actually is going to be better than what it is right now. And you have to have a sense of agency. You have to believe that I can do something to bring that better possible future about. We're seeing that right now in what's happening in Ukraine, right? Like, I mean, just look at the stories of individual bravery and heroism that are coming out of that country. And it's often that when circumstances are thrust upon us, you know, that's sort of when we realize, like, are we brave or are we actually a coward at heart? And when you see stories of, like, women walking up to soldiers in the street and, like, putting sunflower seeds in their pocket and saying, you know, at least, you know, at least when you die, these sunflowers are going to grow in the place where your body falls or whatever. Like, this is a little old woman doing things like this. It's like, you know, um, and I, I am just grieved by the circumstances that lead to those kind of encounters. But that is bravery and action when somebody believes that there's a better possible future and is doing what they can in that circumstance to bring it about. And I think one of the things that's happening right now in our culture is we're being robbed of our sense of optimism. Um, it's being stolen from us. We're being stolen from. Um, we don't believe there's a better possible future. What story are you living in? Um, and the other question is, how do you believe that better possible future is going to come about if you even do believe in it? You know, some people are putting all of their belief and their faith in human institutions, government, a specific leader. You know, I don't care if you're right or left or whatever, a specific leader is going to bring that about. But what is the story that's driving your optimism, the story that's driving your sense of a better possible future? If you're a business leader, what's the story that's driving your sense of a better possible future? And are you being robbed of your sense of agency? Are you being robbed of the sense that I can actually do things every single day to bring about that better possible future? Or are you in a place of basically victimhood where you feel like you, you know, there is a better possible future, but I can't do anything about it. And so it doesn't matter. Right. So my encouragement to anyone listening, and this is something I've been working on myself over the last couple of years in the midst of all that we've been experiencing is I need to stay rooted in that story of the better possible future. I need to maintain my optimism for that better possible future. And I need to do what I can every day to cultivate a sense of agency and to do little things, have little victories every day that are moving me toward that better possible future. It's not about the big things. It's about the little things we do every single day. Um, Gretchen Rubin once said, what you do every day matters more than what you do once in a while. 
And I think that's really a great mantra for all of us to adopt right now. Do the little things every day that are moving you toward that better possible future to maintain that sense of agency in your world. And that, I believe, is the fertile field in which bravery can happen. That's good stuff. So if someone wants to follow up with you and your stuff, where do they go? Uh, ToddHenry.com. It's my personal site. Uh, you can also listen to the Accidental Creative Podcast since 2005. Been delivering weekly tips on how to be prolific, brilliant, and healthy. Thanks for being with us, man. Good to have you on more often. It's the only time we get to spend time with each other anymore. <laughs> so we'll do that again. Hey, th- thanks, Todd. There you go. Take something you've gotten here. Put it into practice. Make it a discipline. Make it a habit. Make it something that's novel and give your life some variety. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.